Well, we come to Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17 this week, and um, Genesis 2, verse 4 actually marks the beginning of another section in the book of Genesis. Um, Remember that the verse numbers, the chapter divisions, were not in the original text. They were added, I think, in the medieval period, but in any event, uh, they were not part of the original text. So some of these chapter breaks or, in in my opinion, in less than a fortunate place, but uh, the end of uh, the first week of creation, or the week of creation actually ends at Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3, and Genesis 2 verse 4 begins another section. And if you were outlining the book of Genesis in a big, broad scope uh, basis, you would say that primeval history occupies chapters 1 through 11 and patriarchal history occupies chapters 12 through 50. So that's, that's a real simple way to divide it, and then obviously within those big breaks or subdivisions. But Genesis 2-4 marks the beginning of a, an, an, another section. Top of page 2, um, some observations about the text. Uh, when we look at this, um, a couple of observations, first of all, with respect to the name that is used for, for God and the nature of the, the account that's given. Over the years, um, unbelieving or liberal, if those are different, commentators have looked at the book of Genesis and have come to the conclusion that there were multiple authors of the book of Genesis, and uh, that is not correct. Moses wrote the entirety of the whole Pentateuch uh, and the entirety of Genesis for sure. The reason they come to that conclusion, which is a faulty conclusion, is that what happens in uh, Genesis 2-4 is another name for God is used in Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis 2 verse 3. The name that is used for God is Elohim, uh, God, and it speaks of his majestic power, uh, his rule in creation, uh, and we have a new name here, and it's a wonderful name. The, the name that is used for God here in chapter 2, verse 4, and it continues through chapters 2, 3, and 4, uh, is Jehovah Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, however you want to, uh, to describe it, but it's a compound name. And uh, Elohim, uh, of course, is the name that was used in the earlier section, uh, and then to, appended to that is the name Yahweh, or as you may have it in your your Bible, Jehovah, or Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. If you've got the legacy standard, it's it's spelled out Yahweh, but uh, Lord, Jehovah, uh, Yahweh, whatever, however you want to, to have it. But it's the covenant name of God. And, and so we have a new name here, and it's used uh, 35 times. But the fact that we have a new name doesn't mean that there's another author. It just simply means, and there's a very significant reason uh, that Moses uses this name, which is obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because all of the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But here, it's interesting that um, in, right in the proximity of a discussion about the Sabbath, the seventh day, which occurs in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, you've got a name uh, appended to God, uh, which ascribes not only his role as creator, but his role as 
um, the sovereign, uh, one of the universe who is engaging in a relationship with man and enters into a covenant relationship with man. And that word is Lord or Yahweh. And it's interesting that if you look at Exodus 20 and you look at Deuteronomy 5, where you have the the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue recited for you, uh, in one instance, uh, the seventh day, the day of rest, uh, the Sabbath is described uh, because on that day the Lord rested from his creation. And in the other instance, uh, the reason that is given there is it's ascribed to his work in redemption because he delivered Israel from bondage. And so here we have in close proximity to uh, the introduction of the Sabbath day in Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3, a name that is attached to God that specifically identifies him not only as creator, but as the redeemer and covenant God of the universe. And so it's, it's no mistake that, that, that Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, would have uh, selected that, that term. But just because we have a different name that is used obviously doesn't mean uh, that there is a, uh, a different author. And that's really described for you on page two. Another interesting point is in the beginning of this verse four, you have, it depends on what translation you have. Uh, the New American Standard says this is the account um, the, some of the other translations, the King James, the ESV, some of the other ones we use, the, the, these are the generations, and that's actually probably a better translation of that expression, but the Hebrew term is toledot, um, and it's written out for you on page two of your notes. The significance of that is that Moses uses this term, these are the generations, or this is the account, but the Hebrew expression toledot, uh, it is a linguistic marker that he's about to engage in another chapter, if I can use that in the account. It's used ten times in, 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 in the book of Genesis. And so when you find this Hebrew expression and you'll find this English translation, these are the generations or this is the account, it's a linguistic marker that, that they're simply, the, the author is moving into uh, a, another description of what God is doing. So it's interesting that in chapter 2, verse 4, uh, Moses uses this expression because he, he's going to describe in fuller detail what was previously disclosed to us about God's work of creation in chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. Another point that the liberal commentators have uh, gone to, and uh, it, it's very unfortunate, is they'll look at chapter 2. Is, is this a different account of creation? Is it contradictory? And it is not contradictory. It's an amplification in many ways of what Moses is giving us in chapter one. There are details in this section in chapter two that were not provided in chapter one, and it goes specifically to the nature of God's relationship with man. Uh, and so that's why very likely Moses used this new name for God, Yahweh Elohim, because that's the term that, in, that in, includes both God's role as creator and his role as redeemer and covenant God, because he's going to enter into a relationship with man uh, in chapter two. In chapter one, the scripture tells us that the, the Godhead said, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created him. And so, but here we have, and we're gonna see this in verse seven of chapter two, much more detail about how that actually 
played itself out. And, and there's some very important and very particular points that are made about how God actually created man. So that's just a, a, the first two pages of the notes really uh, go into that. What, as you move from uh, verse 4, and verse 4 simply says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, or Yahweh Elohim, made earth and heaven. And then in verse 5, what you have is a description of the world as it existed prior to the creation of man. I've used the term untended creation simply because it's a description of um, uncultivated might be another way to express it. Uh, Prior to the introduction of man into God's creation, uh, the Lord God had been making uh, animate life and he'd been making uh, vegetation of various sorts. Uh, But until the sixth day when man was created, uh, the, the earth was not being cultivated. And that's exactly what God is describing in verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, the scripture says, Now no shrub of the field was yet uh, in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. And then there's a reason for that. Why? For the Lord God, or Yahweh Elohim, had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So in verse 5, you have a description of the condition that existed in the, in, in the world prior to the introduction of man. And there are four no's in verse 5. Uh, no shrub of the field, uh, no plant of the field, uh, no rain, and no man. So you have a, a, basically a discussion about there was no cultivation that occurred. And, and understand that these are 24-hour days. We're not looking at eons. We're not looking at indeterminate passages of time, long passages of time. We're looking at 24-hour days here. So uh, we've got the introduction of plant life, and then very shortly thereafter, you've got the introduction of man who had a responsibility to perform, to cultivate what it is that God had created in terms of vegetation. Uh, But as David Guzik says, uh, and this is on page three, when God first created vegetation on the third day of creation, that's in verses uh, 11 through 13 of chapter one, man had not yet been created, that's on day six, uh, to care for the vegetation of the earth, and there was no rain. Now, David has a different explanation of this. There there are two ways of looking at it, but uh, his explanation is, and this goes to the translation of a word that is used in verse six, He's using the term mist, um, and you'll see that in some translations. Uh, it says that, th- that there was a mist that came up out of the ground. Other translations will say, and this is preferable, that there was a spring that came up out of the ground, like, like a water spring. Uh, David Guzik says a thick blanket of water vapor uh, in the outer atmosphere. This would be the firmament or the expanse created on the second day of creation made for no rain cycle, but for a rich system of evaporation and condensation resulting in heavy dew or ground fog. Could be, but linguistically, the, the, the word that, that Moses uses in verse six, where he says that a mist used to, uh, uh, used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground, that's the NASB 95. Actually, in the legacy translation in the ESV, it's translated a spring, and that's, a, that's actually a more accurate understanding. A spring was watering the ground. Uh, and so, but, but there are people who take both points of view. It's really not a major point. Uh, but these no's, uh, no shrub, 
no plant, no rain, uh, no man to work the ground, is describing the pre-fall condition of the world. Uh, it was uncultivated, there was vegetation that was growing, God had planted it and it was, it was thriving, uh, and, and there were things that, that had not yet been created uh, or developed. Uh, that we, we look at the post-fall world, and so we see uh, the difficulty when sin entered the world, uh, work became troublesome for Adam. It became painful for him. It became difficult for him. And so when we look at weeds and, and, and all the difficulties that we face in doing work today, that didn't exist prior to Genesis 3. And, and so here you have man being put into play for a very important responsibility to fulfill purposes. Um, so that basically uh, we have an introduction of man uh, in, in the sixth day, but we're going to get to that in verse 7. But uh, Moses at this stage is simply describing the nose, no plant, no shrub, no rain. And why was that? There was no man. And man was introduced to cultivate, to care for God's creation and to fulfill uh, God's purpose uh, in, in his creation. So that takes us over to page four of the, of the notes. What's really, I think, a point that has to be made, and this will be explored more in verse 15, but in verse 5 of Genesis 2, we have the explanation that man had not yet been introduced to cultivate the ground. We have a responsibility that man had been assigned to care for the world. In verse 15, the scripture specifically says that man was charged with the responsibility to till uh, or to dress and to keep the, the earth. Um, work. Uh, work is not a result of the fall. The fall came in Genesis 3. Uh, here we have the responsibility of man to care for uh, the creation that God had brought into being. Uh, we, we talked in chapter 1 of the, of the dominion mandate or the creation mandate for man. This was the responsibility of man to exercise rule and dominion over what God had created. And that relates to animate and inanimate life. That, that relates to uh, the, the vegetation. It relates to animate life. Uh, and and the, the, the responsibility is to care for, to shepherd, to, to be a good steward of what God had created. Uh, and a great deal of responsibility. One of the things that happened in the Reformation was there was a recovery of the biblical understanding of vocation, not vacation. We, sometimes we tend to focus on vacation, but the, the doctrine of vocation, and that mean, a calling, literally a calling. That's the, the term comes from calling, and that's work. And the Reformation uh, reinvigorated the truth that, that all legal work, all lawful work is, is honorable and pleasing to God. It's not simply that ministry alone is honoring to God. Ministry is honoring to God. It's a special calling. It's a special vocation. But here we have Adam uh, charged with the responsibility to be a horticulturist, if I can use that term, because at this point he was a vegetarian. Uh, it was later changed in, in, with, after the fall. Uh, but the responsibility of man was to cultivate the ground, to, to dress it, to keep it, uh, to be a steward over what God had created. And that's a vocation. And it's, it's important that, brothers and sisters, that we understand that whatever calling God has brought you into, whether you work with tools and you, you're a craftsman or whether you're in finance or you're in the medical world or you're in a technology world, whatever God has called you to do 
is a, a vocation that God has ordained for your life. That doesn't mean that that's uh, stationary, that it, it never changes during the course of your life, but you should regard your vocation as a work unto God. Uh, of course, the New Testament reinforces this, that we work as unto the Lord. And, and so that's exactly what is being pictured here uh, in, in Genesis 2, is man is being charged to work unto the Lord. And that, that's never changed. It becomes more difficult after the fall. Uh, it's a result of the curse. Uh, but the doctrine of vocation is, is very, very important. Um, in Colossians 3, uh, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So when we when you start your day, uh, whatever time that happens to be, or in the evening, depends on your work hours, uh, you should be approaching your vocation with the understanding that I am here to worship God, that I am here to serve God, and whatever it is, if you're uh, manning a telephone and, and responding to inbound calls or you're uh, creating some type of a, a construction project, whatever the case may be, you're fulfilling the vocation that God has, has called you uh, to do. And that's, that's unfortunately something that was reinvigorated in the, in the Reformation. I, I think it probably has been largely lost in contemporary thinking, but it bears repeating. But we talk about this relationship uh, that, that man has with God. In, in verse 7, we have uh, a very specific description about how God created man. In Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27, we, the, the scripture says that you have this intra-Trinitarian uh, dialogue going on where they said, let us make man in our image. That was very different from every other aspect of creation. In every other day of creation, we read, God said, let there be light, let there be the expanse, let there be beasts of the field, whatever the case may be, and there was. That's not the way that man was created. The, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had an intra-Trinitarian discussion, dialogue, and, and said, let, there, let us make man in our image. And in the image of God, he created him, speaking of Adam. How did that happen? Well, that's described for us in verse 7 of the text. Uh, and, and the scripture tells us in verse 7 that the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's much more detail than we had in chapter 1. So we don't have a different, we have a different account. It's not a contradictory account, but it's a complementary account of what we see uh, in chapter 1. Uh, what's interesting is there are four words in, in this particular verse that are all very important. Uh, when we read that, uh, that the Lord formed man, um, the, the word form is a word that is used often uh, in, the, in the scriptures to describe um, a work of art, um, a, a potter working with clay uh, to create um, a, a, a work of art, uh, something that's very beautiful. Uh, even the eye is described as God forming the eye. And if you know anything about the intricacy of the human eye, you know what an amazing uh, work of creation that the, that the eye itself is. And so the word form is different. Uh, earlier, as I said, God said, let there be and there was. When we come to the, the formation of man, 
The scripture says that God engaged in forming man, and the, and the term that is used again is uh, like an artisan working with materials to shape something of great value. That's an entirely different way of describing the creation of man than any other aspect of creation. Uh, and so, but also, um, the scripture says, out of the dust of the ground. And so you have, uh, as, as some people have said, lest we become um, uh, sort of full of ourselves, knowing that, look what a piece of art I am, uh, the reminder is that I'm made of dust. Uh, so we're not immortal. Uh, we are definitely mortal. A man was never immortal, uh, but man is made of dust, and unto dust uh, he shall return. Uh, Matthew Henry, this is on page 5, just comments that while dust is not evil, it is still lowly. Uh, that man was not made of gold dust, uh, powder or pearl or diamond dust, but common dust, dust of the ground. So that's a, that's a rather humbling but true reality. And John Calvin uh, notes that since the body of Adam is formed of clay, no one should exult beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not learn uh, to be humble. Uh, and so that's, that's a, a very candid way of expressing our self-assessment. Matter of fact, in our care group last night, we were in Romans 12, and Paul says in Romans 12, verse 3, let no one think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment. So to have a realistic appraisal of ourselves, what, what is it that God has done when he created man? He shaped man. He engaged in a creative act. Uh, the, the hands of God, if I can use that expression, literally fashioned uh, into a new creation, uh, something that had never existed before out of common materials, out of the dust of the ground. And, and then the important thing is the scripture says, what did he do with, with this work of art that he had done? How did he animate that work of art? How did he bring the, the, that, that work of art into being a living soul? You know what the, the scripture says? He breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life. He breathed into the nostrils of man uh, the breath of life. And it, it's, it's amazing. I'm on, on page six now, um, but it's it, it, down at the bottom of page six. Um, one commentator just makes the observation uh, that there is an element of intimacy here in, in the creation of man. When you think about, if I can use this, this, this analogy, when someone is breathing into someone's nostrils the breath of life, you can almost be thinking of CPR. You can almost be thinking of, of someone bringing, and actually it's the same expression that, that is used in the book of Ezekiel, uh, with God breathing into these dry bones and suddenly they became life. Uh, and, and the word is, is actually used of breathing into or a puff of air. Uh, and, and so God himself is breathing the breath of life into this inanimate creation that he has formed out of the dust of the earth and man became a living soul. That's an entirely different way of creation than every other thing that God had made, whether it's the stars, or whether it's the, the shrubs, or whether it's the plants, or whether it's the, the uh, birds of the air, or the, the fish of the sea. In no instance do we read anything even remotely approaching that God would form and breathe into their being the breath of life. He simply said, let there be and there was. And you have this level of engagement of God himself in the creation of man that is, is singular in its intimacy. It's remarkable as we think about it. 
It, it's something we're thinking about, the nobility of man and yet the mortality of man. And both of these truths have to be held simultaneously if we're going to have an accurate assessment of who we are. Uh, but God created us uh, and shaped us uh, in a very particular way and, and made a, a living being, uh, breathed into him the, the, the very soul that he had. There's no description of God creating a soul in any other thing that he's ever made. Uh, man is described as God creating a soul within him, that which endures forever. The body will return to dust, but the soul is eternal. And, and so the question is, where will that soul be upon the, the time when that body returns to dust? That's the question that's so important for every person to ultimately deal with. But the description of man being created uh, and literally breathed into being uh, is, uh, is a remarkable thing. Uh, that's, that's really what's said on, on the top of page 7. So then in verse 8 of chapter 2, uh, we have, where did all of this take place? In verse 8, uh, the scripture says that the Lord planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So he planted and he placed. Um, the garden is a portion of Eden. The Eden is, we don't know exactly where it is, but most people uh, would say the, the sort of the most uh, accurate understanding that we can come up with is it would be in Mesopotamia. Uh, and we say that simply because of the description of the rivers that are described for us in verses 11 through 14. But we can't be dogmatic about it, but the best understanding is that Eden was in uh, what we would call today Mesopotamia. Um, but the, the word Eden literally means delight. Uh, it, it's, in, in today's world, we would say it's like an oasis. It's, it's beautiful. And, and we'll, we'll see a description of this uh, in greater detail. But God created, he planted a garden, a, a cultivated garden, a, a beautiful garden in the area of Eden. And he placed man there. Uh, he, he put man there for a particular responsibility. Um, what's, what's interesting uh, is we see in verses 10 through 14, just jumping ahead a little bit, uh, we had this mist, more likely a spring, uh, coming up out of the ground that watered the earth. And then in verse 10, we have a reference to a river that came out of the midst of Eden uh, and watered the ground. And that river ultimately divided into four other rivers. Um, we can't be sure what two of the rivers are because we don't have the exact location of them. But Two of them are specifically identified. One of them is Tigris, and the other one is Euphrates, and you know where those are located. And, and so that gives you a sense of where Eden was, and that's why people come to the conclusion that it's in what we would call Mesopotamia. Um, but we, we can't know for sure about where these other uh, rivers, and we need to remember also that the trajectory and the nature of these rivers uh, almost certainly was changed. This was before the flood. When you had the flood, you had a massive deposition of sediment and a change of the topography of the entire world, uh, something that, that has never occurred since, nor will it occur since. That's the Noahic covenant, that God will not again destroy the earth with a flood. Uh, but the magnet, it was not a regional flood, it was a worldwide flood. It was completely devastating. Uh, and so when, when you look at the account of the flood and you consider the, the deposition of sediment that took place and the topographical changes 
uh, you can see that it's impossible to be dogmatic about the exact location of some of these rivers or the nature of some of these rivers. So I think we, we just simply have to uh, acknowledge that. So that's on, on page 7. On page 8, um, just a, a description uh, of, of Eden. Um, it, it, paradise, delight, oasis, perfection, splendor, beauty, those would all be terms that would be entirely appropriate for Eden and for the garden in particular. Um, God's proximity was there. His personal presence was there. In chapter 3, we read that God walked uh, with Adam uh, and Eve in the garden. His presence was among them. Now, God is, is a spirit and has not a body like man, so, but the point that's being made is not that God has literal legs, but when the scripture says that, that Adam heard him walking in the garden, it simply says that God was moving in his very midst, and he was, he, he was identifiable by changing, by either creating sound, or it was very evident uh, to Adam that God was in his midst. God was personally present uh, with Adam in this splendid, beautiful, perfect garden. Uh, that, that God had created and planted uh, Adam there in, in their very midst. Uh, there, was, there was absolutely nothing uh, that Adam would have la lacked. Um, is page 8, about the third paragraph down, you have someone who was made in the image of God. Um, God had, if you can use this expression, kissed life into him, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and brought him into being as a living soul. He was perfect. Um, he was sovereign over creation. We've looked at this before. We use the term vice-regent, uh, that God had created man and given man the responsibility to reign over the earth in his place. That's a great responsibility. That's the responsibility that we still have, by the way, as Christians, is to exercise dominion over God's creation in a responsible biblical way. But that has not changed. That was not taken away at the fall. So the dominion mandate is a creation mandate. Uh, the sovereign over creation. He was blessed of God uh, and, and enjoyed the unparalleled presence of God. And then we have an introduction in, in the midst of, of all of this. Um, it, it, we have in verse 9 that God had made every tree uh, in, the, in the garden that was two descriptions, pleasing to the sight and good for, for food. It's important that we realize that God was creating something of aesthetic splendor as well as functional use. When it says pleasing to the eye, God literally created something that was beautiful as a manifestation of his creative work, of his splendor, of his, of, of his magnificent work of creation, something for man to look at and to marvel at and to say God's hand has wrought this. And just you can imagine the colors, the, the textures, the, the diversity of what God had made. Uh, everything was absolutely perfect. And, and, and he placed man there uh, to enjoy that and to cultivate that. And, he, and God walked, if I can, it, it, the scripture says in Genesis 3, in their midst. And this is what, this is the condition that existed uh, with, with Adam at that point in time. And he provided everything that was not only splendid or suitable for the eye or delightful for the eye, but good for food. Everything he needed. So the substance for food, 
um, something to sit and, and enjoy, just to look at and to, and to, 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 partake, to partake of. Um, I can't imagine, uh, and neither can any of us imagine, simply because we live in a post-fall world, what that would have looked like. Uh, but one day we shall, again, those of us in Christ, we shall once again enjoy exactly what is being described here. So that's something to look forward to, is, is to be in the very midst of God in, in a world of sinless perfection. Uh, so anticipate that, meditate upon that truth. This is a little glimpse into what we will enjoy, and it's described in greater detail in the final chapters of Revelation uh, as well. Uh, but these trees, uh, but there are two trees in particular in the midst of the garden. And they are described for us uh, in, in verse um, 9. And, and we, you know the names of them, don't you? Uh, you have the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't the tree of good and evil. It was the knowledge of good and evil. And then you have the tree of life. And those two trees um, would determine the, the destiny of, man's cre of man and his future. Uh, and we come to that in verses 16 and 17. But, but literally in the midst of all of this Edenic perfection, uh, the scripture identifies two trees in particular that God had created in the midst or in the center of this, this garden that God had created, uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and uh, the tree of life. Well, with all of this, we have um, the, the responsibility of man, we have the dependence of man upon God, and, and then we have the responsibility of man uh, in his, uh, the commandments that God had given him in verse 16 and 17. Um, and, and so the commandment, first of all, is expressed uh, in a, a positive or permissive way. And the scripture says in verse 16, <clears throat> the Lord God commanded the man from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So here you have this, this binary uh, commandment, you have a, a command of permissiveness uh, that you may, and then you have a command of prohibition, you may not. And you have sanctions associated with the second commandment that in the day that you eat of it or from it, you will surely die. Adam had no knowledge of death. He had no experience. Death had not entered the world. But, but, but he knew enough to know that, that, that he was being placed in a position where he had this responsibility. And, and it's, it's interesting uh, that when the scripture says that in verse 15 that God put man there, that, that the scripture uses a word, um, put actually has a nuance to it that's associated with Sabbath rest. Uh, it's, it's actually used in Exodus 20 with the Lord resting on the seventh day. It's used in Deuteronomy 5 of servants being called to rest. That same word is used that Moses uses when God put man in the midst of all of this beauty. It, it was a restful world. It was a perfect world. It was a tranquil world. It was absolutely perfect in every respect. And, and so he was faced with this commandment, a binary commandment. You may and you shall not. And, and so this, this is the, the place in which he finds himself, the, the prohibition to disobey, and you will surely bring death. Uh, we'll get into the implications of this more when we, when we talk about Genesis 3 and the temptation in the garden and man's failure in the garden. 
but we just simply need to know that literally these two trees would ultimately uh, determine the eternal destiny, not only of Adam, uh, but of every single other human being in all history. Romans 5:12. Therefore, so by one man sinned into the world, and death through sin, and so all died because all sinned. We sinned in Adam. Adam was our federal head. Uh, and so what he did, we did in his stead. Uh, his action uh, is attributed to us. Um, when, when we talk, when we, today we, we live in a world where uh, one person will make a decision and that decision uh, has binding effect upon all of his subordinates. And, and all of, of mankind descended from Adam by ordinary generation, as the, the Reformed Confession has it. And, and so what Adam did in the garden in Genesis 3 uh, inures to our detriment, uh, and uh, just as if we had been there, we would have done exactly the same thing if we'd been in his stead, and, and that's the, the, the position that we find ourselves in. Uh, but here we have a, a, a test uh, that is being used uh, for Adam to determine. What, what's interesting, on page 10 at the top, there's a, an insightful comment that one author uh, came up with, and I, I think it's worth uh, pointing out. The question, so what was the temptation for Adam in light of the every tree abundance of the garden and the surely die threat of the forbidden tree? Adam had, had no experience with death. He was living in perfection. He had beauty. He had, su- he had sustenance. There was no anxiety in his life. There was no threat in his life. Everything had been provided for him. What's the temptation? The temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to seek wisdom without reference to the word of God. It was an act of moral autonomy, deciding what is right without reference to God's revealed will. It's interesting, if we look at Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel 28 is that passage that actually speaks, most people believe, of the fall of Lucifer and it says this occurred in Eden. And we have um, a a description of rebellion against God, of not being content to remain in in his his splendid uh, state of creation. As a matter of fact, it's described as a remarkably beautiful uh, creation. Uh, But what happened in Ezekiel 28 is, is you have a picture of Lucifer's fall, which occurred prior to Genesis 3. And, and so what, what occurred there, you had an act of autonomy, you had an act of rebellion against what God had ordained. Uh, and, and it is precisely what took place uh, when, and, and again, we're anticipating what we'll talk about in Genesis 3, but uh, when Satan himself, in the guise of a serpent, uh, said, has God said, uh, he was introducing doubt into what God had specifically revealed to Adam and planting uh, seeds of discontent and introducing the possibility that there could be something better than simply obeying God. And, and that's, that's what happens when we uh, look at what God has ordained for us uh, and we're not content with that, we're not satisfied with obedience. Uh, we engage in what this particular author describes as moral autonomy. And when, we, when they desired wisdom, they sought it outside of the world, uh, the word and the will of God. They usurped God's role in determining what is right and wrong. So here we get to the very heart of original sin. It was to sidestep God and his word and will in order to become wise. Moral autonomy brings death. I did it my way is an autonomous dirge of death. Uh, 
that this anticipates again what we'll look at when we look at Genesis 3. But the temptation was not a deficit in what God had provided. Sometimes we, we face temptation, something we don't have or something that someone else has that we want or something that looks attractive to us. None of that was present in Adam's life. He was not lacking a single thing. Everything he'd ever wanted could, it was right there in abundance. Beauty, substance, contentment, perfect climate, God's presence. You may eat of any tree you want, but this tree you cannot eat for the day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. When we look at that and we say, how could that temptation have ultimately resulted in, in an act of moral autonomy, rebellion against God? It, it's simply this. It's, it, the Pro, proverb says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. It hasn't changed. There is a way that seems right. Now, we live in a post-fall world where we're all dealing with temptation, where we have fallen human nature. So it, it's, it's even more uh, interesting to consider the fact that Adam did not have a fallen nature at this point, but he had the ability to obey or disobey. His, his, his nature was, was uh, such that he could either obey or disobey, but he disobeyed. And, and the temptation was to find wisdom, to find direction, to find sustenance in a way that God had not ordained. As a matter of fact, in a way that God had prohibited. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very sobering thing. In the contrast, Adam was the first, uh, the first Adam. That Jesus is the second Adam. He's also our federal head. Uh, and all of us either find ourselves as Adam is our head or Jesus Christ is our head. Uh, if Adam is our head, then, then we're, we're, we're lost. Uh, if Jesus Christ is our head, then, then we are in Christ and we have eternal life. And, and so the, the reality is that when we, are, when we turn to Christ, uh, because he's regenerated us, uh, we appropriate the forgiveness that is available only in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in Christ. We are identified with Christ. That's our standing, and Christ is our federal head, and all of his riches are ours. All of the standing that we have in Christ is ours. And, and that's our position, adopted into the very family of God. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. So Christ is our federal head. Now, for, as believers, but Jesus himself said by every word, he lived by every word that, that, that comes from the mouth of God. You remember where that came from? Matthew 4. Jesus himself had been taken into the, into the wilderness, directed there by the Spirit of God. He was there 40 days, and after 40 days, the Scripture says that he became hungry. And he came face to face with Satan. Satan tempted him uh, to turn the stones into bread. And he could have done that. But he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There, we have perfect submission, perfect contentment, perfect willingness to, to abide by the will of God, even in a time of, uh, of, uh, of doing without, of hunger, of, of uh, famishment. And the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, fortunately, all of his obedience is credited to us. That's the nature of justification, friends, is, is that that perfect obedience of Christ not only the forgiveness of sins because of his penal work on the cross uh, where he, he suffered the wrath of God in our place as God's propitiation of his wrath, but his perfect obedience, he never failed. He was tempted in ways that we could never even imagine because we succumb in an instant. Jesus was tempted in, a, in, a, in an infinite fashion and never failed. Perfect man, perfect God. And that perfect obedience is credited to us. That's the nature of justification. It's not just that I've never sinned. It's that all of that perfect obedience of Christ, his active obedience, is attributed to us. So our sins are washed away. 
and his obedience is credited to us. And that's why we have a place in heaven. So I, I just, it, it's important that we make that, that point. So here we have the introduction of man. We have the creation of man, the, the condition uh, into which he was created, uh, and the, 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 the responsibility that he had. And, and where we'll pick up next time is, is how uh, his helpmate entered into the world, and it's a very special description, so I wanted to save that for a, uh, a uh, separate treatment because it's a wonderful section about how God uh, brought Eve into Adam's life, and uh, so we'll save that for next time.